Hey guys, welcome back to a new episode of Calculator Chaos. Today I'm here with the co-founder of Buy Me, Mr. Devin Hughes. How are you keeping, Devin? I'm good. Calculator Chaos, I love that. <laughs> I, I have often said I'm an agent of chaos. Yeah. And I, think, I think it's important to be able to thrive in a chaotic environment. I think so. I think, I think in the entrepreneurial world, you have, to, you, have to, you have to like the chaos a bit. You need to... Sure, yeah. <laughs> but um, so let's go back to your early days. So I suppose, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Well, let's hear the background story. Sure, uh, well I'm a blow in to Dublin. Um, I grew up in Meath, um, lived in Navin, went to an all Irish school, uh, which I would not recommend to people. Um, and then I moved to Dublin for secondary school. I went to Castle College for three years, um, skipped fourth year, and then did a stint in the institute uh, right. before going on to National College of Ireland uh, to study finance. Okay. And coming up to your leave and certain stuff, what made you want to go down the finance route? What was drawing you to that sort of sector? Because I didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do. Um, you know, I started to get, I, I would say I probably have always had a, you know, an entrepreneurial bent to me. Um, you know, as far back and I can remember my parents would be pushing me out the door with a lawnmower and you know, a bucket of soap telling me to do the rounds of the estate, washing cars, cutting lawns and making my pocket money. Um, and that probably gave me that kind of instinct of you know wanting to do something by myself and the independence of creating your own income, which is quite exciting. Um, but when I got to secondary school, probably in fifth, end of fifth year, early sixth year, I was really starting to feel like, oh, I think I want to start a business. Um, and I spent a good bit of time working. And, I, and at that stage, that was my first experience of actually sitting down and working on cash flows and forecasts and actually thinking about what a business would look like. What's the structure of it? Uh, using my, you know, leave insert business studies to try and uh, stitch it all together. But when I knew I wanted to go to university, not going to university wasn't an option, and I was the first person in my entire family to go to college. So you know, for me, that was a, a massive milestone for life that I wanted to get under my belt. Um, because I felt that I'd be setting, and setting the trajectory for the rest of the generation of my family that come through. Right. Um, so I went and did uni, um, but because I didn't know what I wanted what to do, I figured if I did finance, you know, that would be a great foundation. I could pretty much do anything I wanted if I understood the fundamentals of finance. Um, and that was the logic about going in. And then it was just about finding the right finance course. Um, I had a particular interest in the markets um, and NCI had a really great financial services program which you know, gave a, a module spectrum across you know, all things like corporate finance, accountancy, uh, corporate law, um, as well as derivatives, financial instruments. And for me, that was just a, that was an ideal fit. Um, plus, I was pretty shit at school. Like I wasn't, I wasn't gonna go and do best in Trinity. Um, I got three hundred points on my leaving cert, like perfectly average mm. in uh, in academia up until university. And you know, when I got to university, I actually started to, you know, learn stuff that I had a passion for. Uh, economics specifically was a, a real sweet spot for me. Um, and so that's when I really started to kind of you know find my bearings. And do you subscribe to the fact that uh, I know Gary V harps on about this that he feels like the education system universally is really failing people who want to, especially uh, up and coming entrepreneurs or people who want to get into an entrepreneurial area? Because technically, if you look at yourself purely from your leaving their points, you're an average student and you're going to be middle of the pack your entire life, which clearly hasn't been true. Would you subscribe to the fact that, you know, I obviously know the, the baseline for the school system is based on the industrial revolution of like building workers, factory workers. Yeah. So would you subscribe to the fact that maybe it is failing entrepreneurs? Um, is it failing entrepreneurs? Uh, I wouldn't say it's failing entrepreneurs. Um, and remember Gary Vee talks about the context of the United States. Is the United States failing their, their, their you know, population with the level of fees that they've allowed happen in yeah. you know, third, level, third level? Absolutely. Are we getting screwed over with education? No. 
we can get actually really high education for not a huge amount of yeah. money. So in that sense, I actually don't think it's a massive failure. I do feel that, to your point, that the way in which our economy operates, the way in which people access labor has shifted dramatically, and therefore um, the way you quantify value or economic value or potential potentiality of economic value for uh, individuals has changed a lot in, in particularly the last 15 years. Um, so yeah, I would say the education system is, is trying to catch up um, to a, an exponential shift in the way our world works, and that's been driven by technology. Um, so yeah, so in that sense, I, I would agree that there's definitely room for improvement. Is it a failure? I don't think so, because we're lucky to be in the country that we're in in terms of access to education. Um, but also, I think a lot of people, are, unfortunately, and this is a nature of potentially just being you know, young, is that a lot of people don't, aren't deliberate in what they do. Um, they're influenced by their parents or their friends, uh, where they went to school, if you went to a private school, disproportionately more likely to go into an accounting, legal uh, or finance uh, based uh, education system. If you went to public school, you're much likely to end up in public service. So these are the things that influence you uh, and unless you've developed uh, an ability to think independently at a very young age, uh, you're going to be very easily influenced. And so you know you might not find yourself doing something you love. Yeah. And do you think uh, with the access to the internet and especially let's say our, speaking to my generation, Gen Z, do you think the ability to be able to actually be influenced by people online and actually break out of that mold? Do you think that's one hundred percent? Yeah. Like you look at the level of connectivity that's happened in the last, um, you know, five years even. Like I like Buy Me is operational five years, and I think about how different the level of connectivity is just in Dublin alone now. Um, like even us talking here today, we, we met through Instagram. Yeah. You know, you just reached out, we managed to connect. I was able to see the stuff that you're doing. You know, so I immediately able to validate who you are, what you're about, and whether I want to commit time to it. You know, and likewise for you, to me, you're able to see content that I've done, and that is what brings us together. So that's never existed before at the, in the way of, the way it does now, um, and that does change your ability to be influenced, not by just your parents or your immediate family or your peers, mm -hmm. people you're surrounded by physically, but virtually you're able to connect to a much bigger audience. And I think that's going to be quite transformational, and already today, I think that's having an impact uh, on particularly your generation. Yeah, hugely. Like I, I can even say, speak to myself. Joe Rogan's a huge influence, Gary Vee, like a lot of these people I actually would actually see myself shaping into or like have taken characteristics from. Taking inspiration from. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and then I suppose going back to your own story, so a while in college, were you working or were you building businesses or what way did you navigate your few years kind of outside uh, the classroom? Yeah. Well, my first couple of years, I just wanted to get my shit together in college um, and that was just a whole new experience. So um, it wasn't probably until my final year of uni where I started to really explore the idea of starting a business. Um, and that was actually when I met Gareth Clare. Mm. Um, so me and him, I think, met at a really crucial time. We were both you know, coming into our final years. Uh, we both had entrepreneurial bents. You know, he comes from an entrepreneurial family. Um, I was raised to think very entrepreneurially. Um, and I think those two things com coming together. And that was the first time I met someone who had an equal level of interest in you know, commercial success. Um, albeit we didn't come from you know, money, we weren't, you know, we're coming from big wealthy families or all the rest, like our families are working class, they work to put us in good education, you know, and, and we were quite lucky to be there. Um, but I think that, those similarities um, created this really interesting soundboard very early on in our careers. And I think we very much helped each other, and still to this day, 100% help each other to get to where we're going. Yeah, and then, I suppose then, what was the first business you and Garrett got into then? And so the first business we, we wanted to do was a solar farm. Um, so Garrett's family had some land in Longford um, that wasn't really doing much. Um, and we wanted to, and a friend of mine's dad had recently invested in a solar farm. And so I had this really interesting idea, why don't we build a solar farm? Like, 
totally naive. We had no experience in solar, far solar farms, renewable energy, nothing like that. But we just thought, okay, let's try and do something. Um, and we've always been more quite keen to try and do something big, <laughs> just by our nature. Um, and so we uh, went on a journey to start that business and actually got quite a significant amount of traction quite quickly. And in the way that, you know, we went to New York, Garrett's uncle had been working in uh, Guam with a gentleman by the name of Diego Belmonte, um, and he was the ex-CEO for PhotoAudio, one of the largest solar manufacturers in North America. Um, and we were just early start stage getting our kind of stuff together, but we could talk a good game. Um, and we went for dinner with Diego, and Diego said, look, I'm really interested in expanding. You know, I'd love to have some offices in Europe. You know, would you guys be interested in coming into my business? I will set up the, the office in, in Dublin, and that'll be our European HQ, yada, yada. You know, this whole vision. We were so excited because really what we, we had grown up with the likes of Dragon's Den and The Apprentice, and so we knew how important mentorship was, you know, because those two shows were massive uh, when we were in university and, and kind of growing up. And so we were just super excited to have this, you know, mentor, dragon-like figure take us under his wing, um, and we just learned a huge amount. And I think the early exposure that we got through that business Although like it wasn't much more much more than us working for Diego and kind of trying to make stuff happen here in Ireland, um, we got exposed to a huge amount. I remember we we were invited to invest in a pre-IPO investment company or pre-IPO investment in a company called Norbachi, which was at the time smart LED lighting and um, Internet of Things before Internet of Things was really a buzzword, um, and they were raising ten million dollars to and they were prepping to go public in like three to five years. And the founder of this company. Um, uh, Farzad the Abachi. He uh, had started two companies previously, took one public, it was worth seven billion, he sold it, made a fortune, and then this was his third business. So he was like a proven entity. Um, and I remember me and Garrett raised 50,000 euros from friends and family uh, to invest alongside Diego. He was put a quarter of a million in between himself and a friend. And so we bumped our, our money together, we went over and we yeah, we met the team, we made an investment and all the rest, and just learned a huge amount just throughout the process. We were 20, 20 21 years of age at that time. So, you know, we're sitting there with people who talk about big visions. I remember we were sitting at lunch one day with Diego and Farzad, and you know, Farzad, we were kind of just observing, you know, while well, these two guys just, you know, talked the house up. And um, I remember Farzad saying something that stuck in my mind so clearly, which is like, you know, you know, I've run a hundred million a year business before, Diego. That doesn't excite me anymore. This has to be a billion euro a year business, or it's not really that interesting. And like, you're sitting there, twenty years of age, fresh out of uni. And you're just hearing this, you're just, your mind is just being literally exploded all over the restaurant, right? And so me and Gary came back to Ireland with this mentality and this kind of teaching and training. And I think that had a massive impact on the way we thought about our businesses. Um, and it's, you know, I think that's what's allowed us to perhaps think, you know, I think bigger than potentially some people feel they can um, and not be afraid to have a longer term, larger vision. I think that's really important. So, so yeah, so I think those, those early, experiences in starting businesses together were, were quite quite impactful and um, we brought tried to bring led lighting to ireland tried to bring some of norbachi's products here and um, we ended up on the late late show um, by bumping into ryan toberty in a, in a pub and garrett's a great 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 for the chat and so uh, by the end of uh, a pint and a half garrett had gotten us on the late late show the next week um, and then we were on the radio the week after that like we got this hat trick of like in the newspaper, on the radio, and on the Late Late Show in a matter of like, you know, six weeks, it was incredible. Um, and again, all this was just training. You know, that business didn't go anywhere. But we got all of this training, one, how to put together an investment prospectus, how to raise capital, how to go out there and get publicity. 
like they're all the tools that we use, we both use today every single day for our businesses. Um, and had we not gone into those business and failed, we wouldn't have walked away with that, those skill sets. So it's, you know, these are the things that I think are really important to think about when you consider this word failure. Um, you know, that's, that's so subjective. And um, yeah, because you don't walk away with a fistful of cash doesn't mean you walk away empty handed. Yeah, I, does that really subscribe to the model of win or learn, isn't it? That like, you know, like obviously I used the word failure earlier and that was actually ingrained in my question, but realistically, like you said, every time you go into an endeavor of any sort, you're gonna learn something, especially, like obviously I'm 19, so go, anything I've done to date, any business situation I've been in, it's just been a huge learning lesson and like everything you take away from. And going forward then after that, so you'd learned a lot of lessons in and around that project. Where was the next step? Where did you go next? So um, we did all sorts, like we imported sporting equipment from China and sold it to golf shops around the country in the middle of a recession. You could tell that our market timing wasn't quite fine-tuned at that stage. Um, again, a little bit of money from friends and family. I think we got about 25 grand together, but we barely broke even on that project. Um, decided to get out of that business. And then at that stage, myself and Garrett had, had spent five years together um, living in each other's ear holes. Like, I mean, I was sleeping on his couch, he was sleeping on my couch, and I was getting him a job. Like, we worked nine to five in our business together, and then we also worked five to midnight evenings and weekends in either bars or restaurants or selling like selling electricity door to door. Like, we literally lived the same life for, for the first, you know, five years after university, or three to four years after university. Um, so at that stage, we were getting sick of each other. Um, and we also, I think at that time, we, we both felt we had kind of learned as much as we could together, and we, I think we both felt that need to actually kind of spread out a little bit and kind of go off and do our own thing. Um, I, I went off and I worked on um, a couple of things, so two things, I worked on um, a digital design house. So I got together with a couple of friends and we put together a digital design house, similar enough to what you guys do in graph digital, but more focused on creative design. Um, and we were looking at, you know, at that time I'd recognized a, a, an opportunity in the app economy, although I didn't really fully understand it or could define it at that stage, but I recognized that the app economy is going to be quite important for connectivity of businesses to consumer market. And so I thought, you know, every, every business should have an app. Um, and so we started looking at building apps for um, small, medium-sized businesses, restaurants, um, and likes, and clubs. Um, that didn't go anywhere. Just it was too, too early stage, and apps aren't, don't really have much functionality outside for certain businesses, but not all businesses. And there's, there's learning to be that there. Um, after that, I decided to take a sabbatical from startups because I had failed four times this three times in a row over the course of maybe four years and I was fucking exhausted and I needed to like recover mentally emotionally and spiritually from the, the process of going through that because it is and um, it's quite traumatic you know and you have to it's you're fully vested in something uh, and you have to go through the ups and downs that go with it so I needed a bit of a break and I also felt you know I don't like failing the same way over and over again. Now, if I'm gonna fail, I wanna make sure I'm failing differently. Um, and so I thought, you know what, well, why don't I take a break? Um, you know, I can re replenish the savings a little bit and I get some experience. Because there's something I'm not quite missing, or something I'm missing. And so I decided I wanted to get a, a job with a business that wasn't too big, but big enough that I could see what scale looked like. Um, so I was looking for, I started searching for businesses that were hiring that had 30 employees or 100 million in turnover kind of what I wanted. So 30 employees, meaning I could get to the founder or the CEO, I'd be able to get some face time, but I'd also be able to get to the heads of each department and see how their departments worked. But 100 million is 
significantly scaled, so there's a big business there, and I get to understand how that works. Um, and I ended up getting a job with a 10-year-old business called Veiu, uh, which was still run by one of the founders, uh, Colin Kennedy, and uh, I joined his business as a, a junior uh, account executive, um, working primarily with large retail manufacturers and pharmaceuticals to hedge and manage their gas and electricity portfolios, which for me was a really nice bend because it, it leaned into my interest in the financial markets because you know gas is driven by commodity markets, commodities are driven by yeah, economic impact, geopolitical and, 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 uh, and other. So for me, the energy industry was a real sweet spot and I'd also spent some time in the solar space, so there was a nice little connection there. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of my, my, my I would say the prelude to to doing anything anything significant in you know in terms of actually scaling and, and starting a business by myself. And did you have any hesitation then? Because obviously, kind of going in and having those three attempts to actually go and start the business, and obviously, I can only imagine doing it once. I can imagine like there's a lot of people, a lot of eyes in you, like 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 you raised capital from friends and family, which I actually thought you made a very good point in one of your other interviews, which I want to talk about as well, is the fact that like how can you go ask a stranger for money if you won't have a few awkward Christmases, you know? Exactly, exactly. that's a hundred percent right. Um, I'm really glad you, you picked up on that because that, I'm, I'm glad people take away that point because it is one of the things that people do all the time. They, they're ready to ask a stranger to back them, but they're, they won't go to their friends and family. You know, and I, I've had friends and family like, back me and refuse to back me. Do you know what I mean? And that's also awkward. Like when you ask like, uh, an uncle to, to give you a few grand to start this business and they say, no. <laughs> right? But that, that's part of parcel of the, of the experience of raising capital is people are going to say, no, it's going to be a little awkward. Get used to it. Um, but yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're going to go out there and ask strangers to back your business, then I mean, showing them that you've taken uh, your grandmother's money um, to start it. And you know, that shows a certain level of dedication and belief that what you're going to do is going to work. Um, it's easy to lose a stranger's money. Um, it's not so easy to lose grannies. No. No. And, and then, let's say, because obviously you raised capital a good few times for these businesses. Did you, let's say, by buying it, was a few of them going, here, again, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, like, I mean, but I suppose here's the most important thing. Every time someone backed me, they made their money back. Okay, you, that you yeah. every time. Okay. Well, actually, the, the golf business, I took a, I took a three and a half thousand euro bath just to give my investors the 10% uplift I promised that they'd get. Mm. Um, so... I could have broke even and they would have got their money back, but I had promised 10%. Yeah. And rather than say, oh, you got your money back, isn't that good? It didn't work. As I actually, my story, what I want to be able to say is, you got your 10%, what I said it would, even if it came out of my pocket, it doesn't matter. And it's not going to move the needle for me in my lifetime of success. Um, you know, three, three and a half grand is not going to be something I, you know, stay awake at, thinking about um, five years on. So for me, it was important that I was able to stand over and say, you know what, anyone who backed me, you know, made their money back. Um, and I think that's quite important because also in the early parts of your career, you're going to have these defining moments where you make these decisions and they're going to decide what type of professional you are, what type of person are you going to be in a decade. Um, and you know, when you fire a gun and you move it slightly to the left, slightly to the right, you know, fast forward a mile or two miles, it's significantly to the left, significantly right. So for me, I think those tiny decisions that you make early on in career kind of really start to influence your long-term trajectory as a, as a, as a business person. Um, and although it might not seem pertinent or important, or you should really be quite thoughtful about those types of things. Um, because once you've made that decision, it's much easier to make it again. Um, 
and that's something to kind of be mindful of because the other side can be quite negative. You know, if you say, well, you know, they, they knew the risks. Yeah, that's very easy. Next to time, easy. maybe you say that again, maybe, and maybe it's not so reasonable. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, it's, just, it's my own, I suppose, philosophy on business. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the key fundamental is when you're taking money that you're very, very transparent. You know, and that's something that, you know, people, I've had seven co-founders in, in a decade. Um, I've learned more about myself than others during that time, you know, what it's like to work with so many different types of personalities. Um, but I've been in business relationships where people have been significantly less transparent with me. Um, and, and it's resulted in me being um, left out in the lurch or financially damaged in one way or another. Um, and so how I choose to do business is, is by being like just radically transparent with people. Um, and I think that that's quite important, particularly in the early days, because there's so much unknowns in startup land. Um, people need comfort if they're gonna join you on a journey. Investors or otherwise, and and you you would deem the transparency overall. And are you talking about transparency just with the co-founder, or are you talking about transparency with the whole organisation? All stakeholders. All stakeholders. Okay. All stakeholders. Yeah. All wow. stakeholders. You sh should have um, transparency in terms of what they're being, what they're getting involved in. Mm. Sure. Hundred percent. Fair enough. And then stepping forward after the energy business, where did you go next? Um, so that's that was where things started to really uh, head in this direction. Um, so I was in the energy markets about two and a half years, enjoyed it, but the money was shit. And you know, at that stage, I was then two and a half years as an employee. Um, after we went our separate ways, Garrett didn't go and get a job. He actually went straight into his next venture, which turned out to be a great success. He went into Crust Bakery, you know, started his wholesale, <laughs> started his wholesale business, started his franchise coffee shop. Um, he's since exited that business. Um, but to put it in context, while I was sitting at a desk hammering the phones, managing fucking decimal points of electricity. You know, I had my good friend, someone I grew up with, out there making it happen for himself. Um, and so I, I found myself with this kind of, you know, constant poke in the eye. Every time I looked at Facebook, it was Garrett, you know, saying, look what I've done, look what I've announced, we're in the press, we've done this, you know? And uh, I think at a young age, comparison is something that you find yourself leaning towards a lot compare yourself to your peers all the time. Uh, I'd like to say that that gets better with age, but it doesn't all, it's not always the case. Uh, some people don't, don't make it past that. And you know, to be very honest, for me at that point, you know, I was disappointed that my previous business hadn't worked out, you know, trying to decide what I was gonna do. You know, I, I said I took a break off startups, I did, but I didn't know how long that break was gonna be or if I'd ever go back. Um, and now I had this nine to five, you know, I was with my girlfriend, Lise, my now wife, and we were kind of wondering what our plan for life was going to be, you know. So you, all these things are starting to happen in your early twenties, um, and I found myself getting very resentful, particularly at Garrett. Um, still friends at the time, but definitely there was a, there was a, an animosity in me that I didn't I didn't quite was quite alien actually to me. Um, but I found myself wanting to mute him on my feed because um, I didn't want to see it. It just reminded me that you know he's managed to make something work and I didn't, you know. Um, and it was one of those, again, one of those kind of moments where I was like, okay, inch to the left, inch to the right, what are we gonna do here? Um, and so I started, rather than, when I went to mute, I said, no, I'll like and share, like and share. Did not want to like, did not like it, did not want to share it, like and share, like and share. And every week, every time he'd post, like and share. I would just do it automatically before my brain had an opportunity to think about it. Fast forward three to four months, I actually began to like and share, like proactively. I started to feel proud 
of him. I felt like I was a part of his success by sharing it and promoting it. I've been like my good mate, you know, we've started a business together, look how well he's doing. Like I really started to lean in. Um, and there was a massive step change in my own mentality and, and thinking. Um, and then all of a sudden I started to get this massive inspiration from him. Um, watching what he was doing, I was like, this is incredible. Like he's managed to do this, he's must, he must have learned so much. Um, and around that time, I had a guy who was really interested in starting a business. Um, and he approached me, he was, you know, he had not done it before and he was working in a bank and he was really keen to start a business and he wanted to get into payment systems. He had this idea for a biometric payment system. I thought, wow, that's really out there. Um, and for me, I wanted to more than anything, just warm up the muscle of being an entrepreneur again. Right. So it's like, you know, okay, let's get back into this idea piece, you know? And so I said, okay, let's having had a couple of co-founders there, I said, let's work together for six months and see if we get on. And mainly I want to see how hard you work. That's what you're really looking for at the early stage of the relationship. Whatever the idea is, it doesn't really matter. If you're going to co-found a business with someone, the idea can come and go, it can change, it can, it can shift, but the personalities, the work ethic, they're constants. And so for me, in the early part of a, a working relationship, that's what I'm looking for. You know, is, our, is our work ethic the same? You know, do we have a personality? Can we bounce off each other? Or can, can we create healthy sparks of conflict? Right? Um, because nothing great didn't come you know, without a spark uh, of friction. So um, we spent about six months you know, researching the payments market and the industry and I was kind of getting more and more excited about being back in this way of thinking um, and we decided to go ahead and start something. So we uh, came up with a prototype, an MVP as you call it. Uh, this company was called PayMe. You can guess I wasn't very creative with names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it spelled M-I-E. <laughs> <laughs> Identical. You know, just one letter. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, so um, we started working on this prototype and I actually, at the time, we obviously, not, neither of us were technical and we wanted to build this prototype to link your fingerprint to your credit card uh, to begin with and that you could pay by fingerprint um, because we felt this idea of con like paying with cards was going away one way or another. We were right. Contactless is by far the most preferenced uh, pay now, but our technology never would have scaled with the way platforms, phones, the the existing infrastructure that smartphones provide just to make this massive, massive distribution uh, channel that you, we never would be able to compete with. Um, but during that stage, we met with people, met with mentors, met with uh, um, lots, lots of different people, and, and but two very important people who I met. Um, so we put the project up on Upwork so that we could get someone technical to do it. Um, and a guy called Artavaz Sakoyan, um, an Armenian guy based out of Yerevan, who owned a small little development house, uh, bid for the contract and won it. Um, and we ended up working with Art for like six months on this little prototype. He built it for us, great, we had this thing. And then I went and shopped it to Enterprise Ireland and a few investors couldn't get anyone to bite. Then Apple Pay launched, I was like, all right, okay, time to take this one behind the barn, put a bullet in its ear and move on. Um, and at that stage, you know, I'm, I'm four startups in, so I've gotten a little less emotional. My first business, I kept it alive on life support for like a year, you know, don't leave, don't leave, don't go on me now. Um, whereas now I'm much more kind of, okay, this isn't working, let's just clean the slate because time is of the essence. Um, and so, yeah, we took that one behind the barn and I remember we were sitting in the Gingerman pub um, beside Trinity College and we were drowning our sorrows, you know, commiserations that this business wasn't going to make it. Um, but myself and, and Gabor, uh, the lad from the banking uh, company, who was, we, we were keen to start something, so let's, let's do something. And um, lo and behold, grocery delivery came into the mix. Um, and at the time, I actually didn't think, I, was, I wasn't really interested in it. I didn't really like the, the sound of it. You know, I thought it was a bit of a boring sector. Um, I didn't know anything about it. 
Um, and I went home to my wife and I said, you know, uh, you know, he wants to get into grocery delivery. I'm not so sure. She was like, why don't you just spend some time like looking at the market? So I took a day off work and actually spent an entire day just reading uh, reports. Um, and at that stage, you know, after a while, I saw very clearly that this market had, was dysfunctional by nature, had a massive opportunity and a, and a significant disruption on the way, uh, one way or another, because the fundamentals were skewed. Um, by that, I mean you had a nine billion pound market, Ireland, UK, total spend online in grocery, 300 million euros in losses, uh, but a, a demand curve for grocery by consumers that was going to double to 20 billion. For any free market economist is going to tell you that if you have a rapidly expanding market, have heavily compounding losses, you're going to experience a disruption at some point. So I just thought this would be a cool space to be in. Um, we took, came up with the idea for, for Buy Me. We looked around a couple of different um, models, what was working, what wasn't working, why was it not profitable, etc. Um, and then we came up with the concept for Buy Me, and then we brought that to Art. And we said, Art, how much would it cost to build a prototype for this that we could bring to Enterprise Ireland investors? And he said, man, I absolutely love this. Uh, if you'd be interested, I'd love to come in and, and be a part of this. And today he's my CTO. We've been working together five years now. Um, in fact, Buy Me in Armenia is a bigger business than his business when we met. Like we now have close to 30 people full time in Yerevan. Like it's, it's crazy to think about it, like the journey that we've been on. Um, and so now we're, we're becoming quite a large business um, together. So anyway, that's, that's more or less how we met. And the other second most person uh, that we met was actually Owen O'Byrne. Uh, who was the third largest shareholder in Relex. And we, we pitched pay me to him and he really liked the idea. And we, he was interested in mentoring us. Um, and he was, you know, he was disappointed it didn't work out like we did. But when we came up with the concept for buying, we went back to him, pitched him, and he actually became our first angel investor. Um, so again, you know, pay me, pay me failed miserably. Um, but I got my first angel investor and my co-founder today out of it. So um, it's, you know, it is what it is. And um, I know some people don't subscribe to mentorship. What's your stance? Because clearly you've said a goofy times that you've had a goofy mentors throughout the last years. You subscribe to, the, to mentorship. Absolutely. Yeah. I subscribe to mentorship is demented. <laughs> like, I mean, who in any right mind would think that they don't need to learn from anybody? Yeah. Um, that's just bizarre to me to even think about. Um, no, I've had, I've had countless mentors um, and some stand significantly out, um, out uh, as, you know, as examples, um, but in varying parts of my career um, for varying different purposes as well. Like, you know, um, you're not going to have a one size fits all Swiss Army mentor, mm -hmm. you know, um, you're going to have different mentors who teach you different things. Um, you know, I've had mentors, like I'll give you one example. Uh, I met really early on a gentleman by the name Carla Hearn. He was the ex-managing director for Wira, which was Telefonica's uh, accelerator. Um, he was my first advisor who officially joined the business. He was first board advisor, had equity in the business um, when we were just an idea. The first time I met Carl, he kicked my teeth in for three hours telling me how shit the idea was. Like 100%, like, and, I, and, and challenged me on stuff that I hadn't spent time on covering. You know? And the reason why he joined us was that a week later I came back having done a survey of 400 people on the street and said, you were wrong here, here, and here, and you were right there and there. But actually, I, I think in, in, the, in the overall scheme of things, we've got great business here. And it was because we'd come back not uh, inhibited by the teeth kicking that we got. Um, but he took, like, the amount of phone calls he got from me in the first 24 months of buying me was just insane. I would, I would I'd cringe to clock the hours that I took from that man's life. Um, now he has equity in buying me, so he's done quite well. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, he was there for me every time I rang. Um, and the thing that he would teach me was, you know, being thoughtful about the problems that I had to handle, trying to think outside the problem, not necessarily getting sucked into the day-to-day the -day issue. 
which was really important at the startup stage because you can, you can get pigeonholed or tunnel visioned into one problem and you lose the big picture. Maybe this problem doesn't need to be solved today. Maybe investors don't care about this problem today. You know, can you look at the bigger picture? Can you drive a bigger story? And that was the stuff that I learned from Carl. Um, you know, since then I've had other mentors, um, Eamon Quinn, you know, from Super Quinn. He's taught me all about the retail market, how retailers think. Uh, Desi Boyd, strategy director for Unilever. He's taught me everything about the brand market, how brands interact with retailers. Um, Scott Weaver's right, ex-CEO for Morrisons.com. Um, so, you know, he's an entrepreneur of the <laughs> truest form and um, built and sold his business to an exit for 70 million to Morrisons um, in 2013. So these people who I've met along the way have just been immensely valuable um, in, in all different areas of uh, business. Wow. Um, and I suppose in the early days of Buy Me, I know you, I heard you talk about the fact that you invested almost unprofitably in customer service and making sure that, w- that was the huge aim for the first couple of years. I presume you still obviously have a heavy influence towards that now, but in the early days, that's what you really tested. And the fact that you were actually a personal shopper for a good number yes. of times, well, over a thousand, I don't know, you certainly don't know. 1,800 yeah. deliveries. So talk, talk about the thought process there and what made you take that step? What, what, what made you do that? Um, I had no fucking choice. Uh, there was no one else to do it. So that was part of it. And when you're building a multi-sided platform, uh, the, the challenge every platform is faced with is how, what do I create first, the chicken or the egg? Supplier demand, right? And so for a grocery delivery service, for someone to make an order, there needed to be someone to deliver. So for me, I had to be the chicken, right? So I'll start, customer's the egg, the, the transaction happens and I have to do delivery. And you know, we wanted, you know, in the early days, particularly a consumer business, you're trying to show a couple of really key metrics. One, um, big uptake, number of downloads, uh, conversion, what percentage of those downloads turn into an order, and then retention. They're the only, the only, really the only three things you need to prove at pre-seed stage for a business like that. And remember, we had just raised 100K. So, sorry, a bit of context. Decided to do buy me, left the energy markets, spent a year working in a technology company, learning about technology before I started buying me. So it wasn't like, oh, I've got an idea, let's go do it. There was 18 months of prep. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently who was trying to start a business in the, um, in the drinks industry, uh, and he was getting so down on himself, talking about how he's not made any progress. Um, you know, he's, he's trying to get this business plan together, and he was like really, really getting down on himself, because I'm just not making progress. I'm not, you know, I'm not putting in the effort. I was like, right, how long have you been at this? Oh, Devin, I've been at it for at least three months. And I'm like, Christ, man. Like, I mean, again, to put, like, to put it in context, I said, I worked on Buy Me for 18 months before we ever launched a single product, like or delivered a pack of eggs. You know, the, the time that it takes to learn a market, understand the economics, the fundamentals, and then actually understand where, what business you're going to build, and then validate whether it's worth building. Like, there's, there is easily 12 to 18 months work in there. So um, once we got through that point, we then decided, okay, we're ready to launch. We've validated that there's a demand for the service. We'll get this product prototype into the market and see if we can get what's called product market fit. That's what everyone is looking for. That's all you need in the early days. That is number of downloads, conversion rate, and retention rate. Are people interested in your service? Will they purchase your service? And will they come back again? And if they do, you've got a business. If they don't, better luck next time. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me in the early stages, it was like, right, well, there's no one to do delivery, so I'll just do it myself. So I quit. Salesforce, February 2016, and I became the very first Buy Me shopper. Um, and what I loved about that was that, you know, one, I learned 
well, I built everything from scratch with my team. I really understood the problems that shoppers were going to face, all of the friction points that might you know, get in the way of scalability and profitability at scale. Um, but what I really love about it is the credibility it gave me. You know, remember, I had no track record. I wasn't a successful entrepreneur. I wasn't able to just go out there and say, oh, well, I've done X, Y, and Z. Give me a million quid and I'll you know, blow up. Like, that, that wasn't the reality. I was nobody. Um, and we talked about it earlier on how important trust is you know, when you're raising capital. Um, and, and a track record is incredibly valuable. Your reputation is incredibly valuable, uh, which I had none at that stage. Um, so when I was going into investors, when you don't have track record, you better have grit. You better have something else to put on the table. Right, because you've got to make up for the fact that you've never done this before. So why would I give you my money? Um, and so for me, that credibility was: I actually do this myself. I know what what it takes. Um, you know, I spent 52 calculated for context. I did 50 spent 52 full days in my car between 2016 and 2018, like 52 days in my car driving. Um, when you you know when you're able to put those types of numbers in front of an investor and say, I know this business from the ground up, inside and out, left and right. Um, not only does that build credibility, but also it means you can defend your business from every angle because you, you know where all the bodies are buried, right? So that's, that's the real important part of it. And then when it comes to your, your initial question around customer uh, investment, yes, we invested disproportionately and uncommercially in customer experience because profitability wasn't the problem. That's not what we're trying to solve pre-seed. In the early days, what you're trying to do is get the fuckers to come back. So they give you a second chance to optimize and create a, create it, uh, a more efficient uh, um, supply chain. That, that's really all it's about. If they don't have a good experience with you, they're not going to come back to you because they're not going to trust you. So you have to be front and center. And when you go in, you deliver some groceries, and you tell them that you own the business, man, does that land well. They go, wow, that's really cool, man. I really love the service. And, you, and if you screw it up, you can say, listen, I'm really sorry. You know, I actually own this business. We're trying to make it work. You know, we'll do better next time. So that human connection where you're just being transparent with people about what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, and so for me, that's really important. Like I do, I do a session on the platform every month. Um, and tomorrow, actually, we're doing a, a big piece of the Irish Times um, where they're going to come with us and watch us do orders. And you know, we have a customer who has been ordering on the platform since February and to this day does her weekly shop with us. Like, you know, so there's this whole history that we can now talk about and it's become this added value opportunity for us as a business to be able to say, we actually have a story, we have depth. Um, and you know, the, best, the most important thing about business is about creating a human, a human connection for all your stakeholders, be that your employees, your customers, your investors. Um, they all need to connect to the business in a human way. And so focusing on how to give that context to create that story is massively valuable. Yeah, because actually, because even we're looking at ourselves for our own business and like a lot of people in the tech industry, once you purchase once, they're very short-sighted and I'm thinking long, short term, once they buy your, once you receive the money, they don't care. They add no after sales process, there's nothing after the first transaction, which is very short-sighted because like I know even just speaking personally, one of our clients that had a very small job with us and now they're one of our biggest customers, you know, because we, we worked with them, we built that personal connection, we worked really hard with them. And now, they, now we have had way more business with them, but I feel like it's very short-sighted a lot of businesses in Ireland that don't actually focus on after sales, they don't focus on. For sure, I mean, there's, there's a, um, it's definitely an overlooked area um, and, and I think we've, we've always been very vocal about it because we feel that's the thing. Like you're a customer, is so important to your business. Like, you know, um, you need to respect the value that they need, the, the fact that they, once you've built up the trust, you can lose that in a fraction of a second. It might take you months of brand engagement to, to get someone to convert. Um, but if you screw it up for them, and particularly food, food is so personal. 
you know? Um, and if you screw that up, it's very hard to win them back. So you have to be really on top of your game. Um, and again, in the early stages of a business, and you know, optimization can take years. So you need to be mindful of, well, what's the appropriate investment we need to be putting in here? Um, and you, know, you should always be over-investing in customer experience because they're your long-term stakeholder. Um, if you're looking at them as short-term stakeholders, then your business is very unlikely to scale successfully. Makes sense. And then looking at an internal perspective, because I'm actually very curious in the space, a lot of work, I'm reading a lot in this area at the moment, but with regards to say internal, making your business systematic and making, you know, I, I don't know if you read the book E-Myth Revisited, but they focus a lot on building your business as if you're the first of a franchise, so that going forward, everything's systematic, it's not relationship interdependent internally. How did you go about that at the start, or did you highlight it at all, or was this something you ran into, or how did you approach that? It's interesting, yeah, I never thought about it French, like from that perspective. Um, you know, one of the things I would have done very early on was just be really open with everyone who came to work for the business. So I would share all of the data, all of the performance, the cash that we had in the bank, like everything. Like, here's, here's what we got, here's what we need to achieve. Um, I'd come back from an investor meeting and I'd tell my team exactly what the investor said. Here's what they said we need to do. I remember, I don't know how I got it so wrong. I remember that um, we were in 20, early 2019, um, late 2018, early 2019, and I was looking to raise a, a Series A at that stage. We'd done our seed round of about 850 in 2018. I was looking to raise a Series A. And someone had told me, and I never validated it from anyone else, but one person told me that you needed to get 80,000 a month in revenue um, to close the Series A. I never validated what they meant by revenue. Right, because you've got revenue, and then you've got net revenue, yeah. gross revenue, net revenue. So in my head, I was like, "Cool, 80k, grand. We're on track to do that in f three, four months' time." And I remember going in, and I met with <laughs> I met with Nicola McClafferty from Draper Spree. Um, that was my first meeting with her. I was super nervous. I sat down, pitched to the whole business, um, and then I showed my forecast trajectory. Going to hit 80k. And I made sure to call that out, um, and uh, she was like, "Right, uh, 80k net revenue." I was like. No. I was like, oh, right, okay. No, Devin, that'd be way too small for us. So you'd need to be doing at least 80 net, which means I would have to be doing four times more yeah. than what I forecasted there at that time, right? <laughs> I remember going back to my office, uh, which was not dissimilar to the one that we're in today. I remember going back to my office, and we had a whiteboard, one whiteboard in one room, about the half size of this one, and there was four of us in it. And I, I had the 80K target up on the, up on the whiteboard. I just wiped it out and said, sorry, boys and I put up their new target, which was significantly Cheers more. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like that was like one of those moments where you're like, guys, we've got a much bigger battle on our hands. Like this is, we have to get on. So it was that instant transfer of information. And to, again, to your point, how do you bring people into the mix so they don't understand one, what you're trying to achieve? Um, and then making sure that we had a, one of the other things as the business started to grow, investing in and, and championing a culture of measurement. I can't, like this room that we've sat in, I don't know how many times I've banged my hand, a culture of measurement. And we used to, we'd all come into this room um, and we'd have a whole company meeting every week and we'd look at this screen and we'd look at um, all of our data, every single KPI point. Every single data point that our business creates, we would go through it line by line and talk about it each point. What does it mean? What was it last week? Why did it change? You know, and so the whole business all of a sudden understood the, the the gyration of the business, you know, how it was moving, how it was being influenced by external factors. And we are a consumer business. We're exposed to the grocery sector, we're exposed to the consumer sector. You know, these things meet, you know, seasonality, all of this stuff that we were trying to learn for the first time. 
Um, so creating that culture of measurement makes sure everyone understands the fundamentals of the business. Um, you know, talking about the investors and the milestones makes sure everyone understands the direction you need to go in. Those are the things that you want to do in the early stages. I, I, there's no kind of systematic standardization. It's just communicating with your stakeholders um, and being as transparent as you can be to show them what, what you're learning in the, in the market. Um, and then as you start to you know, reach a certain level of scale, then you, and you have a little bit of capital behind you, you can actually start to bring in those processes and you can start to product, productize um, that, that effort. Now we have specific meetings for specific KPIs. Everyone doesn't have to look at the same thing because we have a senior management team in. You know, there's a senior leader now for each individual department of the business. You start to put organizational structure in, we've got a full C team, like all of these things start to come in, but you can't do that from day one. So save yourself the money and just communicate. Communicate as much as you can, and that's your job as a, as a founder, as a CEO. You are a glorified analyst and a salesperson. They're the two roles that you're doing. Um, actually, I, I lie. You know, if I was to split it out, it's 30% accountant, 30% lawyer, 30% salesperson, 5% visionary, 5% bullshit artist. Bullshit artist. Right? Because <laughs> honestly, there's going to be a sprinkle of if, what ifs and if we can and maybe. But um, as long as the fundamentals are true, that look, you can actually lay the data out and say what you're going to do. Um, the rest is you kind of have to stitch together in a way that's really going to connect with your audience. And that is the sales part. Um, I would encourage everyone to get a sales job, particularly early in life. I think it's a great time when you're like just coming out of college, go get a job selling something door to door. You'll very quickly learn how to quick build fast rapport with a blend of personalities in the most uh, stressful of circumstances. <laughs> yeah, door to door sales is tough, I'd imagine. Um, and then, what's your interview process like? Because I'd imagine, like even early days, and even now, like the team you have around you is so so important. And with guys' company culture, I even saw your company um, values up on the wall. Um, what is your interview process like? I imagine you have a team now for that, but in the early days, what was your approach? So this is the thing again, like you know, in the early days, <laughs> you're interviewing people to come and work for your company. Your company has absolutely nothing to offer them no longevity, no career path, and probably below market rate salaries. Who's interviewing who? Let's be real, right? So in the early days, I would interview for them to come and work for me. So basically, it was a sales pitch. I would bring them in, I'd pitch them the business, and I'd really then try and get them under the hood. How, well, how, could they, how, how deep can they get in? How can they, can they work with me to solve problems in this hour and a half that we're together? You know? And that, for me, was the, was the interview. It's like, can we, are you interested? Do you have a natural curiosity? You know, um, and are you bringing something to the table that I don't, like I can't bring, or something that I recognise that might be lacking in, in in what I what I currently have? Um, so yeah, I, I think in the early days it was far more me interviewing for them to come and work for me, and that's kind of how I treated it. Um, you know, I, I I was my first my first hire was a product manager, um, and I was very lucky. I got a great guy, Kevin Hughes, no relation. Um, Kevin was employee number three for Airbnb Europe. Um, did you know? Was with them from three to five hundred pl employees. Then did a stint at Google. Then did a stint at Storyful. Like just worked at top brass startups. And he was looking to get a real startup experience. I was like, oh, I've got one for you. And <laughs> uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I don't think if he knew how real it was going to be. Um, but I spent. I interviewed him two rounds of interviews. Um, he had come to me through a recruiter actually. Um, and each interview was two and a half hours long, where we sat and we just whiteboarded and we talked and we mapped out the, the problems and it was just like we were immediately vibing off each other. And he was really looking for a startup experience, like the rawest of the raw. Um, and I was able to deliver that no problem because like his first day, he was like, oh, so where, where do we work? I was like, uh, just come to this address here. He was like, is, is that your home? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> and he came, we worked out of my apartment for the first six weeks. Now, at that time we had closed the seed round, I had 750K in the bank, but I hadn't even thought about getting an office. That wasn't a necessity for me, so I was just focused on the business mm -hmm. um, and getting the orders done and make the customer, sure the customer's right. And so Kevin came in and was like, we need an office. Like, you know, we're gonna go get this together. <laughs> So he sourced our first office and then he started to bring in, like we, he started to help me hire and he actually brought in some of the best practices that he would have gotten Airbnb into the interviewing process. And so we started to really build our culture and our interview process around that. And um, Kevin was a big champion for those company values that you see in the walls. He was the one that really said, we need to formalize the values. I said, yeah, but everyone knows what our values are. He said, no, we need to formalize it. You know, we need people to feel it and to know that they need to work by that. Um, and so he, yeah, again, as you bring people in, they'll start to help you bring structure. Um, because the biggest challenge you'll have is bandwidth. And see, even to this day, bandwidth is the challenge, you know? Because the, the bigger you get, the, just the more elongated and the bigger the problems become. And it's like, right, okay, I need to spend more time on this. This is a three month problem, you know? As opposed to a, oh shit, I need to get this order done in an hour. <laughs> you know, like that's a 60 minute problem. And now you're just working on bigger problems. So um, when you bring people in, and if you're really, I feel that transparency, that approach to transparency will cultivate uh, a good culture. You know, because people will feel like, fuck, you know, these guys are really open with me. I know what I'm getting involved with. You know, I feel like I have real uh, impact in the business. I'm exposed to it. Like I used to say, we don't have uh, board information. We have company information, mm -hmm. right? And we would share it with every level of the business. Now, as you start to get bigger and bigger, that becomes more challenging naturally. But it's a privilege that every business in the early days has have, and you should take advantage of that. You should absolutely. Um, share everything because that's what gets people excited. Why else would you go and work for a, a business that can't give you any sort of, uh, you know, security or, or decent market rate salaries? It's because the fucking thrill of it um, and feeling like you're a part of it uh, in, a, in a very real way. So I think they would be the, again, just this stream of consciousness on uh, culture and, and how we kind of approach it. Um, yeah. and, and what sort of refinements did uh, Kevin bring to the business with regards to the interview process? Like what he said, he kind of he refined the process for interview. Yeah, like, I mean, it was, it was more or less of, uh, we came up with a structure, okay, so we'll do three rounds. And um, you know, if they're, you know, we pro if they're gonna be in any sort of leadership position, we want a presentation as a guarantee. Um, and then just a, a raft of different questions based on their skill sets, you know? Um, but if it's a technical role, we'll always do an exercise, any sort of technical role, uh, analyst, software developer, Anything like that, you get a technical role as part of your, and you have to then present that back to us. And um, if you're a senior manager, we want to see vision, strategy. What do you know about the business from the externals? Conscious, you don't have the whole picture, but what what do you think as the what do you see as the opportunities? We just want to see people's ability to ind you know for independent thought and critical thinking. Um, the skills that I would argue you develop most likely in university. Most people develop critical thinking and independent thought in university. And I think if there was ever a sell as to why the vast majority of people, not, not for everyone, but why the vast majority of people should go to university is that they get to develop those skills. Wow. And um, because remember you speaking, so we, we initially met in the Entrepreneurs Anonymous call, but you said, I remember you remember clocking that, that you said that you showed the employees the bank account all the way through. And I thought that was, so that's something where I went, oh wow, okay, right. Um, but that also had its downside, well not downsides, but I say it brought camaraderie when you said there was tight moments of money, when you were still actually looking for investments. Um, how, I know even up until late last year, it was still kind of tight. So you can talk about it's in 2019 and then 2020, because I know it's been night and day, I'd imagine, with regards to what was happening. Uh, sure, like I mean, raising capital for consumer business in Ireland is not easy. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be at the top of your game. And even then, there's a good chance you're going to make it. 
Um, we were very fortunate. You know, growth has never been, we've always been able to grow quite, quite rapidly. Um, but accessing growth capital has been a challenge. So we've always had to cut our cloth to measure. Um, you know, 2019, we grew our weekly volume 2,000%. Like, I mean, it's a stupid number. It doesn't even, you say that to people and people go, no, I can't really make context of that 2,000%. What does that mean? Um, a fucking lot, that's what it means. Like, it, it, uh, basically, <laughs> night and day uh, of, of, a, of a type of business and scale that you're dealing with. So, um, I remember we were in talks for investment in, in Q3 2019, um, and the investors didn't quite believe if we could grow. I said, okay, you know, watch. Throttled up six weeks. I said, watch, in six weeks' time. And I throttled up and I tripled, doubled the business in six weeks. Um, but of course, I burned cash to do that. Yeah. So it's like, it's like you know, trying to take off with a 747 and running out of runway, mm -hmm. right? Unless there's an extension of runway, I might not get this off the, yeah. into the air. Um, and so, but I had gotten to a stage where I realized that I needed to bring these investors across the line and they needed a sh practical example of what I was talking about theoretically and I need to make it real um, and so we had gotten at this like we're in our business a long time five years we know our business inside and out um, and we know how to manage it very effectively so I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do and so I was like okay this is a little close to the wire but let's do it I, I think this will get get the deal done um, we throttled up and it got to a point where we had six weeks of cash left in the business now, at that stage, the term sheet was done, round was coming together, so I knew it was happening and we were just working through the timings of the cash landing. So, but it got to it, that's, I mean, that's the reality of the situation, you know, and that's, that's a, a business that is perceived to be killing it, right? Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of businesses are like this in the background. That's what people don't say, you know, the, you know the, there's a great quote, you know, entrepreneurs are celebrated in the light for the work they do in the dark. The scariest shit in the world happens in the dark. Right, and it's the reality for almost every single business, particularly at that jump between Series A, uh, seed to Series A. You know, it's a really critical, very delicate period for any business. Um, so yes, we got this great round away, led by an incredible VC in Ireland, and then COVID happened, and we just everything changed. We had to change our entire funding strategy, commercial strategy, everything. Um, so. I suppose then you have your team. Twenty nineteen, you six week throttle. You drastically ramped up the business, which I don't even know, understand how that's even possible. And then coming into early 2020, what did it look like? Because I know that transitionary period from pre-COVID to COVID is a big jump for yourself. So what was that time period like? Um, um, bizarre. It was bizarre because uh, all of a sudden life became this really strange video game where everything was happening from my living room. Like up until that point, I was in city, I was in boardrooms, I was flying to London you know, Germany, like I'd be out about meeting people, making stuff happen, then all of a sudden everything was happening while I'm in my shorts, in my living room, with a pair of headphones. I felt like a, a, a weird, obscene role-playing game. Um, because all of a sudden the spotlight swung really hard onto our sector as a whole, grocery, because people started to get a bit twitchy. Um, and we were one of the first companies to recognize what was happening because we see data in the FMCG market, unlike most, real-time FMCG consumer spend. And we, you know, I remember the day they announced the closures of the schools and businesses was the day I realized something um, big was happening. And I had been in meetings all day for our Series A, the investors all day. Um, 
actually, I was, I was with uh, Keith Weed, who was uh, the global CMO for Unilever. So he joined us as an angel investor, um, and I had been pitching him that day. Um, and I got out of the meeting, and I got straight into an Uber, and I was on a phone call then with my board, talking about how the meeting went, feedback, etc. Got to London City Airport, um, arrived at the airport, my wife rang me, uh, and she was arriving in London City Airport, and I was leaving to go home, and she was coming for a meeting. Um, and on that call, she told me she was pregnant. She had just done a pregnancy test. Um, and so I had gotten that news, and I was like, oh my God, right, okay, but we have you know, struggled in the past to, to have successful pregnancy. So I was like, okay, take it a day at a time. Let's see how this goes. Um, hang up, I look at my phone. Emails, reams of emails, missed calls. Um, and I open Stripe and I look at the app and I can see we've done a week's worth of volume in a day. I was like, what? What's happened? You know, because like, like our bit, I know my business and I can tell you what it's going to do today. I know what it did last Wednesday, you know? Um, and so it's all of these things that tie into it. Um, and I, I saw that they announced the closure of schools and businesses. And, and so you immediately saw that panic, that consumer response to that announcement. That's when I say we're very exposed to what happens, seasonality, et cetera. And COVID was, was no different. Um, this black swan event um, had really started to shift consumer behavior very, almost immediately. Um, and I rang the head of e-commerce for every grocer to ask them what their thoughts were. Some took my call, some didn't. Because um, I just wanted to get a sounding of what's the industry's temperature? Like, how, how nervous are you guys, you know? <laughs> and of course, some people will be open and some people will be like, no, 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 no problems, you know, let's talk later. Um, so I knew they were the most nervous. Um, and so uh, after that, I got on the aircraft and I wrote a white paper to the government about uh, establishing an emergency food distribution uh, uh, fund, which would allow us to put every grocer onto the platform immediately and hire 2,000 personal shoppers nationwide in 12 major urban zones to suppress community transmission by reducing the need to go to store. Um, I brought it home, sent it to Eamon, my chairman, and I said, what do you think of this? Like, do you, like, does this sound crazy? Or like, is this reasonable? Because I actually think we've got an incredible platform here to, to really help with this never, like once in a generation experience. Um, and he says, I actually think that's a pretty solid plan. He says, uh, and we, I submit, so I rang Enterprise Ireland. I spoke with uh, Judy Cinnamon, CEO for Enterprise Ireland. She was, couldn't have been more supportive and, and more helpful. Enterprise Ireland had put us on a list of technology companies that could help uh, deal with the corona out, uh, fallout. Um, and she actually, and then I, I issued the white paper um, and she took the white paper to um, the Minister for, Finance, or Minister for Enterprise Business and Innovation. Um, and so we started this discussion about, about this whole thing. The Irish Times caught wind of the story, got picked up in the Irish Times, so there was all, it was a crazy period, right? And in the meanwhile, all happened in the living room. Um, I was closing a, a round of funding that we had agreed in December, and all of a sudden, there's, you know, our entire, we were now trading a year ahead of where we thought we'd be. So we were, our fi whole financial forecast had to change. And with that, I needed more capital because there was a need, not only, not only a business need, but actually a, a consumer need for stable food distribution in a time of crisis. Um, and we had been talking with an incredible fund uh, called Wheat Chief. And they are part of the Grosvenor Estate, which is uh, the Duke of Westminster's family estate, $64 billion fund, pound fund rather. Um, and Wheat Chief is a 400 million pound venture vehicle 
for capital uh, investment into the sustainability uh, of food and supply chain. Um, and so we had been talking to them for about eight months, nine months, but at the time we were too small. But all of a sudden, within a matter of two months, we were exactly where they needed us to be uh, from a scalability, from a size standpoint. Um, we had tripled the business in six weeks. And so I went to them, I said, guys, like, remember you said you needed me to be X? I'm now X plus. So I said, there's a real opportunity to do something here. Um, and not just something, but the right something. Um, and they said, look, Devin, if, you're, if you'll launch in the UK, we'll back you. Um, and we raised an additional 5.2 million um, on top of that additional round. We had two rounds basically closing at the exact same time, um, which I would not recommend. That is a <laughs> complex process. Um, but it happened very successfully. And I have to say we had an incredible bunch of shareholders and, and investors and, and stakeholders that made all of that happen. Um, you know, even our law firm, Maples, massive tip my hat to them. They've been our firm for ages, but everyone leaned in during that time to get it done because we all felt like we were doing something really meaningful. Um, and yeah, and then we, we got that away and leaned in. Uh, we launched Bristol, we launched Cork. Um, and since then, we've also partnered with Dunn Stores. And so we've really opened the platform up. We're now the market lead in Ireland for same-day grocery e-commerce. Um, we're probably the fastest growing consumer platform in Ireland. I challenge anyone to show me their numbers, and I'll, I'll happily say, yeah, you're right, you're the fastest. But uh, as far as I know, we are the fastest. Um, and that's tremendously exciting. Like, it really is. And to all of a sudden have found yourself overnight become deemed an essential service, it changes the game. You know, you want to talk about culture and value? That changes everything. The entire team all of a sudden became focused on, we need to get these food to these people. They're, you know, at risk. They're vulnerable. You know, there's a risk out there. We're, we're providing something you know, that no one else can at scale uh, as fast as possible. And, and for us, I think that just became um, much more meaningful. Wow. And I suppose I'm very conscious of your time at 53 now. I suppose just because it's the last podcast of the year, in maybe 60 seconds or so, what is 2021 looking like right now? Or what are you lined up for now in the new year? Um, you know, I think we've reached a, a, a much more steady state business. And so we are able to take a much longer term view of, of the market and we're, we're now a major shareholder of the market um, and so for us it's now looking about expansion most definitely within Ireland and um, really expanding to new cities like Cork has performed incredibly well and um, better than we even forecasted and um, so we'll be we will be launching into new cities in, in, in the new year um, we're going to continue to grow in the UK you know we've Bristol has grown over 120% faster than Dublin did when we first launched um, so we see tremendous opportunity in, in Bristol. We're looking at further afield at other markets in Europe as well. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and we might we might also do a little bit more of, a, of funding in that in that year. So it's there's there's a lot happening at the moment. Um, this if there's any if there's one year, if there's one word to describe this year, it was about scale, and that's not just getting our systems ready to scale, but actually getting an organizational structure in place. Um, uh, for the first time, I've just brought in a new COO. He was an actual board. He was a board member previously. He's now stepped in full time as COO. He was one of the founding partners for Unilever Ventures. Um, he'll be doing a big interview in the currency in the next couple of weeks. So definitely wait, check out that. Um, but he has invested over 100 million euros uh, on behalf of Unilever um, in unicorns. You know, and he's sat on the board of unicorns. He's a tremendous mentor to me, and an incredible uh, um, COO and 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 and. Uh, colleague so yeah this year has just been about getting all the all the right things in place for a truly epic 2021 um, and I'm also hoping that you know we'll all put this COVID thing behind us and get back to a, a degree of normality because I think um, I think society needs it
Yeah, well, that's an amazing finish. Thank you so, so much for that time. Oh, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. If you did enjoy it, uh, I'll link all the Devon stuff down below. Um, but uh, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we will see you next week. Good night, we live.